Several years ago, I was at a Sunday service and the pastor stepped on stage and said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he said it again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 is the verse. I'd read it before. I'd memorized it before. But hearing it again and again and again helped it sink into the depths of my soul. So say it with me. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to anchor yourself in this truth this morning as we continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're now in the thick of it with Jesus, and he's illustrating for us what it looks like to have this righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he means by that, of course, is that the only righteousness that matters in his eyes is not partial person behavior, not just going through the actions, but a whole person behavior, righteousness that flows out of the heart. Jesus is concerned with what we do. That much is clear, but he is also deeply concerned about our interior lives. He wants a full renovation of the heart. And this was a point easily missed by the Pharisees and the scribes of his day. They did the right things, but often failed to check that they had the wrong motives. And the reason I want you to anchor yourself in the truth that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ is because our passage this morning on some level is going to disturb you or stir you or cause some wrestling in your soul. As the Sermon on the Mount progresses, Jesus moves from addressing murder and anger to adultery and lust. And while anger probably hit close to home for many of us last week, I suspect that lust is going to hit even closer to home. And this morning, I want you to know, if you're in Christ, you are not condemned. If you're in Christ, you are not condemned. If you feel conviction, that is not the same thing as condemnation. If you feel guilt or shame for a moment, that doesn't mean condemnation. It might be a sign of a healthy conscience. Rather, If you feel conviction or guilt or shame, it's an opportunity to turn to Jesus and relish in the fact that he's inviting you to experience the grace of being with him, that he does not condemn you. He might expose you. He might unveil our hearts. He might show us what's out of alignment, but it's always an invitation to come and receive his grace and to drink of it freely. In our passage, Jesus wants us to see that whole person righteousness in the kingdom is a heart enamored with love, with no room left for lust. A heart enamored with love, with no room left for lust. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew 5. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our gray Bibles home with you, and everything will be on the screen behind me. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I have three points I want to consider this morning. Diagnosing lust, 
the severity of sin and dealing with sin. So let's begin with our first point, diagnosing lust. When I think about lust, do you want to know what I think of? No, of course not. I think of Iggy Pop. You might think that's strange. You might not even know who Iggy Pop is. Iggy Pop is an American musician who's also called the godfather of punk. But the reason I think of Iggy Pop when I think of lust is because Iggy Pop and David Bowie wrote a song called Lust for Life, which was also the theme song of a, song, a movie called Train Spotting. This is going somewhere, promise. And it was a perfect choice. Train Spotting chronicles the descent into addiction drugs, crime, and excessive indulgence in all that life has to offer. And as Iggy Pop is singing in the background, I've got a lust for life. This movie viscerally shows you the outcome of that sort of lust. Broken and destroyed friendships, ruined lives, overdoses, and tragic deaths. See, although lust is often sexual, it's not always sexual. Lust is a passionate and overmastering desire or craving. Lust is a passionate and overmastering desire or craving. You can have a lust for life, and life in itself isn't bad, but lust can corrupt it. And obviously, if you lust after pleasure or drugs, we know that's not going to end well, but this is true of other things. You can lust after career or status or recognition, and lust can and will corrupt these things because over time, lust will master and rule you, no matter what the object of your lust is. In the same way, then, I want you to hear this. Sex is not bad. Sex is not bad or filthy, nor is sexual desire in and of itself wrong or corrupt. But lust can ruin and distort sexual desire because lust by its nature overmasters you and it often does so by poisoning something good. Sex and sexual desire in and of itself is a part of human nature. It is a gift from God, but when in the hands of lust, it is poison. And so our passage this morning, it focuses on the most common form of lust, intense sexual desire and an appetite that overmasters you. And just as a lust for life can ultimately empty you, so can a lust for sex. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now in first century Judaism, under the influence of the Pharisees, adultery wasn't rampant. So last week, just as people could go through the Ten Commandments and check off like, yeah, I haven't murdered anyone, most devout Jews would likely check off, I haven't committed adultery. You must not commit adultery is the seventh commandment of ten. And it refers to a voluntary sexual encounter between a married person and someone other than their spouse. But once again, Jesus wants us to push past the externals of this law, and press in to the matters of the heart. Which is why he goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And suddenly, all the married men listening to him, all the married men in this room, are starting to feel like they might be adulterers after all. And this is a very unnerving teaching. And so before we go any further, I want to pause here and say this. 
if you're not sure if Jesus is the Son of God, but that perhaps he was a good moral teacher, and if you follow his teachings, perhaps you can live a better life, a, a more moral life. Passages like this are designed to disrupt that sort of impression. If Jesus is just a moral teacher, he's a madman. No one can live up to this. Who can possibly live up to the standard of his teaching in this section of the Sermon on the Mount? His teaching isn't designed just to merely make you more moral, but to expose your need for a Savior, which is precisely what he is. Now, I want to get some clarity around what Jesus is actually saying here. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. First, Jesus is not saying that all sins are equal. Jesus is not saying that all sins are equal. When he moves from murder to anger or from adultery to lust, he's not saying these things are equal. All sins are unified as their transgressions against the kingdom of heaven. They are erring against the ways of God. They are an affront to God. Every sin, big and small, is unified in that capacity. But not all sins are equal as some mistakenly teach. Sin varies in impact, severity, and consequence. The theologian Jonathan Pennington is very helpful on this point. I'm going to read him at length. The point here is not a great equalization of all sins. Beating one's spouse is indeed worse than a biting spousal remark. Sexually abusing a child is truly worse than neglecting their need for affection and so on. Not all sins are equal. Jesus' point is not to bring murder down to the level of fallout from anger, nor does he equate adultery with lust, thus removing all distinctions. Rather, these heart-focused exegesis reveal the true depth of the matter. The true depth of the matter that Jesus is trying to get us to see is that even the worst of sins always begin in the heart. Jesus isn't after the fruit. He's not after the actions we can see. He's after its seed. Second, in addressing lust, Jesus isn't saying that sexual desire is to be suppressed or even eliminated. Jesus isn't saying that if you notice that someone is beautiful and you feel sexually attracted to them, that that is inherently wrong. No, that's just human. Jesus is saying very specifically that lustful intent is the problem. So admiring beauty or experiencing natural attraction to beauty is not the issue here. But rather, the issue is using your imagination for the purpose of fantasizing about and objectifying another man's wife as a potential sexual partner. That is the problem he's addressing. Jesus is addressing the man who looks at a married woman with the deliberate intention of lusting after her. The man who deliberately uses his eyes to awaken lust. The man who looks in such a way that passion is awakened and desire is stimulated. And so Jesus, he's tracing the fruit of adultery to its seed in the heart. And to do this, Jesus addresses specifically men who lust after married women. But we would be mistaken to limit the application of this passage only to men, as much as we would like to do that and only to lusting after people who are married as if it's okay to lust after people who are not. 
You see, lustful intent in the heart afflicts us all. It is no respecter of persons in that manner. Men and women, married and single, each person is susceptible to stirring their sexual desire in unhealthy ways. You see, our lustful intent can be scrolling through dating apps and looking at people as objects for potential enjoyment. Or not just noticing beauty as someone passes you by, but playing out a fantasy in your head. The problem with lustful intent is that we think it's manageable when it's not. It is always unmanageable. And it will influence your behavior over time. It won't necessarily lead to adultery, but it will lead to some expression of sexual immorality. And the most common issue in modern culture today is the issue of pornography. Men and women of all ages engage in lustful intent by watching pornography frequently or sporadically. And there's often this laissez-faire attitude to it. It's not hurting anybody. Which you can only say until you've done just a little research into the true realities of the industry. And to believe that pornography isn't hurting anybody, you actually have to believe a myth of culture. That it's okay to objectify people and reduce them down to their sexuality so long as they're consenting to that. But to believe this is to exchange the truth for a lie. Because every person is made in the image of God and our bodies are not our own. They're meant to honor God. To say pornography isn't harming anyone is to buy into a worldview that is simply not true. And much like a lust for life, when lustful intent leads to pornography use, it promises pleasure. Pornography promises satisfaction. It promises self-expression, but it does not deliver. There's now ample peer-reviewed research showing the negative correlation of pornography with uh, depression, anxiety, stress, and a slew of social problems. Peer-reviewed research has shown that indulgence in pornography impacts people's sexual preference so much that they have trouble connecting sexually, physically, in person because of their pornography use. And even now, more and more celebrities, such as Terry Crews, are talking about the damaging effects porn have had on their lives. In secular culture, it's even becoming more acceptable to speak negatively of pornography and to say you should get away from it as quickly as you can because the science is as strong as the evidence of why you shouldn't smoke. But the truth is, many of the people in this room, men and women, are either totally enslaved to pornography use, you just can't stop it, or you struggle, you stop and then come back, stop and come back. And right now, I know some of you might be feeling shameful about that, or guilty, and I want you to hear these words. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Whatever's stirring in you, whatever you're working through, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We'll, we'll work through that a bit more in the sermon, but I want you to hold on to that. And don't let the shame tell you the lie that you're condemned before the God of the universe. Because he is with you. He has paid for your sins. He will never leave or forsake you. I want to be really clear, especially if you're just exploring Christianity, and this is a topic where maybe you're back on your heels a bit. 
The movement of Christianity is not about being prudish or about restricting ourselves sexually because sex is somehow bad. It's actually the opposite. We see sex as a profound and beautiful gift and we understand that the gift is best received and expressed in the context of a healthy marriage. That's God's design around sex. And we celebrate that. And we say we want to have boundaries around that so that true sexual flourishing can happen. So stepping about the, the back, the diagnosis of lust is this. Lust lures us in but leaves us empty. And if we stir our lust, it will overmaster us and result in all kinds of sexual immorality, even adultery. So having diagnosed lust, let's now go to our next point, the severity of sin. Jesus goes on to say this. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is not the stuff of devotions and self-help books. Can we be honest? I've never picked up a book called One Simple Step <laughs> to a Better You, Dismember Yourself. Although, if you took Jesus literally, I suspect it could only come in the form of an audiobook. As we read this passage, a little slow on the uptake there, it's okay. As we look at this passage, I want to employ you not, not to miss the forest for the trees. This passage is not meant to help us develop our theology of hell. Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here to make a weighty point. And so I want to focus on the point he's making rather than going into matters about the doctrine of hell. I'm not trying to avoid that. We've preached on it before. I can give you those sermons. If you want resources, we can give you resources. I'm happy to have that conversation. But I want us to focus on the actual point Jesus is making. And here it is. When lust takes a hold of your eyes or your hands, you're settling for short-term gains over long-term health. You're choosing immediate pleasure and temporary gratification, but to the detriment of your true well-being. Jesus highlights these extreme measures. He says, gouge out an eye if you have to. Cut off a hand if you must to stress the severity of what sin actually does to us. It separates us from God's kingdom. It fractures our relationship with our creator. It causes death. And this is why sin has to be dealt with no matter the cost, because the ultimate cost, should our sin never be dealt with, is our lives ending up on the ash heap of eternity. But why does Jesus go from speaking about the specific sin of lust and adultery to this general statement about sin? I think he does it because in Scripture, Adultery is one of the most powerful ways of illustrating our infidelity to God. The book of Hosea is a story about the prophet Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer. And in a very strange prophetic way, God tells Hosea, the prophet, this, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So Hosea goes and marries Gomer, and they have three children together. 
Then she commits adultery and she leaves Hosea. But then God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he's to seek her out to forgive her, to even pay off her debts to her other lovers and to receive her back home. And all of this was supposed to be a prophetic symbol of God's relationship to us. You see, God describes himself as the faithful husband of Israel. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to Sinai. He said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Let's have a covenant. But before old Moses could even come down the mountain, the people were worshiping a false idol. And right there, God had grounds for divorce. He could break the covenant, but he doesn't. There's consequences but he leads Israel through the wilderness. He brings them in to the promised land. As soon as they're enjoying all the abundance of the gift of the promised land, they offer it to false gods in worship. God could break the covenant then. He doesn't. He remains faithful. He raises up judges. And then one day, Israel says, well, we don't really trust you as a king, God. We'd like to have a king. And Samuel laments this. He says, how could the people ask for this, Lord? And he says, don't worry about it, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And I'll be faithful. I'll give them a king. I'll give them something that I don't desire for them, but I will work through that lesser thing to bring about a greater thing. Why? Because God cannot be unfaithful to who he is. God is faithful and compassionate and slow to anger and full of abounding love, even when we've been faithless. When we experience lustful intent, when it takes expression in our lives as sexual immorality or adultery, it is a very visceral sign of our spiritual issue. We've all been the unfaithful bride to God who always remains our faithful husband, our God who pursues us time and time again, even when we've left him. The one, as St. Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, who is faithful even when we are faithless. And when we have lust in our hearts, Jesus is speaking in these extremes because he wants us to see that we actually desire something less. We desire something less than love. The philosopher uh, Simon Blackburn composed the staccato of comparisons between love and lust, and I'm going to read it to you. Love receives the world's applause. Lust is furtive, ashamed, and embarrassed. Love pursues the good of the other with self-control, concern, reason, and patience. Lust pursues its own gratification, headlong, impatient of any control, immune to reason. Love thrives on candlelight and conversation. Lust is equally happy in a doorway or a taxi. Love is individual. There is only the unique other, the one doted upon, the single star around who the lover revolves. Lust takes what comes. Lovers gaze into each other's eyes. Lust looks sideways inventing deceits and seductions, sizing up opportunities. Love grows with knowledge and time, courtship, truth, and trust. Lust is a trail of clothing in the hallway. Love lasts. Lust cloys. 
when we give our lives over to lustful intent, we're settling for something less than love. And it's because it's a reflection of our true spiritual state. We've settled for the world and its desires, our wants and passions, rather than the radical and always faithful love of God. And so Jesus speaks in these extremes to sober us up, to wake us up, pluck out an eye, cut off a hand if you must. Because when you sin in any form, and when it's lust in particular, it is a sign that you're settling for less. And should you remain in your sin and never repent and never come to Christ for forgiveness, you're ultimately settling for hell rather than love. That is the point Jesus is making. So finally, our last point, dealing with sin. Because that seems to be the heart of the matter, isn't it? How do we deal with this? If sin is this severe, if lust is a glimpse into our true spiritual state before God, how do we deal with our sin in our hearts? There's some mistaken ways to deal with sin. St. Anthony the Great is now seen as a leader of the desert fathers of the third century. Uh, he was quite wealthy and he left it all behind and lived in the Egyptian desert. And he became a hermit. And he fasted severely. He, he avoided sleep. He tortured his body. He was incredibly disciplined. He did this for 35 years in the desert. And his writings reflect that for 35 years nonstop, he could not escape temptations. Even though he had removed himself from all the externals, even though he had all of the spiritual disciplines that the preacher is about to tell you to have, he could not deal with the temptations. They stale came. The point is this. Severity doesn't work. Severity doesn't work. You could live a hermit's life. You could take Jesus' command here literally and gouge out your eyes and cut off your hand or go for you know, extra measure and be blind and handless. But you're still going to struggle with temptation. You could severely discipline yourself and still struggle with sin. Severity doesn't work, including self-hatred. I have never met someone who's hated themselves into a better person. But it's shocking what an aha moment that can be for some of us. Because that's how you've been motivating yourself. It doesn't work. You'll never hate yourself into a better person. And if you're hating yourself for hating yourself, that's not going to work either. Because ultimately, there are no human solutions to our human problem. Until you realize that, you will never revel in Jesus Christ as you ought. There are no human solutions to our human problem. Whenever we deal with any sin, and in particular the sin of lust, we must first be anchored in this truth. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is most powerfully on display in John's Gospel. A woman is caught in adultery by the Pharisees, caught in the very act, which should make you question what the Pharisees were doing, but caught in the very act. And they drag her in front of Jesus and a witness of man. And they say, Jesus, teacher, our law says this woman should be stoned to death for adultery. We have proof. What do you say? And famously, Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. 
And they slowly leave one after the other until it's just Jesus and the woman. And I wish this next encounter with her was as famous as that first scene. Women, where are they? Does anyone condemn you? No, they're gone, sir. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How can she sin no more? I mean, that is a a tall command. And she can do it because she's encountered grace rather than condemnation. Jesus could have rightly condemned her. He is without sin. He is the only just person in that moment. And he says, I do not condemn you. You see, the severity of sin and its consequences, it can waken us up. It can convict us. It can overwhelm us. But that's not what transforms us. It is the kindness of God's grace as a gift, even when we deserve condemnation, that transforms us. You see, as we identify sin, any sin in our lives, as we seek to overcome it, we always have to start with grace. Motivate yourself with the kindness of God, the graciousness of God. And I assure you, you will find more freedom than motivating yourself with self-hatred or the fear of condemnation. Because when it comes to grace, Jesus offered us far more than an eye or a hand. He offered us his body on the cross to forgive our sins and to liberate us from the power sin has had over us. So if you're stuck in pornography, or if you're caught up in anonymous sex made easy by apps like Tinder, or if you're in the throes of an affair, if there's any sign of unhealthy sexual desire or expression in your life, and right now you're feeling a stirring, like maybe it's time to open up about this, I want to invite you to be seen and known, to reach out and to let us know what's going on, and to invite someone into that space to walk through it with you. If you're not sure where to start, you could reach out to me or to Preston. You could reach out to your community group leader. We're also going to highlight some individuals in our community after the service who are happy to be a point person if you don't feel quite comfortable going to the, the authority figures of a pastor. Or you could visit stpf.ca care and look at the different ways we're willing to provide care. But we want you to know that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're walking through, no matter how shameful you may think it is, We want you to be seen and known. We want to extend the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There might be some serious consequences you have to walk through, but you won't have to walk through them alone. Another tangible way we can experience grace, the way we can experience forgiveness, is true spiritual friendship. If you're caught in sexual sin, confess to someone you trust. Confess to another friend. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said to the shock of a few of his students, when I go to another believer to confess, I am going to God. You see, when you invite someone into your secrets or your struggles or your self-hatred, when you confess that to someone that you trust and they hear it and they receive it and they forgive you on behalf of God because God gives his church that authority. It's like going to God. It makes 
the grace that God so freely offers just a little bit more tangible. And I want to speak to you, if you're someone that gets invited into that space, if say the next couple of weeks someone comes to you and says, I have something to confess, and, and they share something with you. They invite you and entrust you in that vulnerable space. My first word of advice is this, do not try to fix them. Don't default to offering advice they've already heard and hasn't worked. They don't need advice. They need a friend. So practice what James says. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. And stay in that space with them. And build trust and listen and pray. And when you pray, don't give advice in your prayer. That's the worst. I mean, don't give advice in your prayer. Just pray that God would reveal his love, that God would give grace, that God would empower, and that God would help you be a faithful and good friend. You see, when we confess, it's a way of building intimacy and spiritual friendships because we're not meant to do this Jesus thing alone. And these friendships help us stay rooted in the truth. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But this truth is based off that little phrase, in Christ Jesus. And part of living in him throughout scripture is sharing in his death and his resurrection. So another step you can take is sometimes you have to die to some things. Sometimes behaviors need to stop. They need to be gutted. They need to be cut off. Boundaries need to be set. But the way we go about that can often feel a little counterintuitive at first. Because you think, I just have to buckle down and get better discipline, you know, and, and be okay. But scripture says, no, do something else. Build some new thoughts and some new actions. You see, you'll never get over lustful intent by focusing on it. You won't. As the Proverbs go, if you try to settle ripples by slapping them away, you only create waves. And so it is with lust. The more you focus on your sexual thoughts and desires, they only grow. So simply saying to yourself, I will not think of this, causes you to think of it all the more. You see, there's no way for humans to avoid sexual desire or temptation. Jesus is teaching control of desire, not suppression of sexuality. And one of the ways we deal with lust and sexual temptation is by turning our attention to new thoughts and new behaviors, or renewed thoughts and renewed behaviors. See, the way you abstain from some actions is by turning your attention to other actions. That's not to say you shouldn't avoid compromising situations or have boundaries to help you stay away. Of course you should. And this isn't to say that in turning away and focusing on other things, you pretend like there isn't an issue going on. That's not what I'm saying either. But it is to say that this developing of new practices has the capacity to take sin's grip on you and lessen it. And over time, through Christ's work in you, you will overcome that sin. Often when young guys come to me and they're stuck in porn, one of the first questions I asked, and it got ruined by Jordan Peterson, but I asked it, did you make your bed today? And I only asked that just to say, look, you've got other issues too. This is not the only issue in your life. It might feel like it is, but it's not. So develop some practices. Develop some strengths in other ways, and God will form you and slowly give you the resolve to abstain from what you once indulged in. 
Paul puts it this way. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If you need some new practices, I would say start with gratitude. Start with acts of thanksgiving. Develop a richer appreciation for your life. Develop practices of prayer or deeper friendship or learning more about God or even volunteering and giving your time away. I'm not saying that any one of these things is the silver bullet. Please don't hear that. What I am saying is a holistic mix is what you need. Grace confession, community, and a set of spiritual disciplines. God meets us in that concoction and his spirit works through all of those things. There is no silver bullet. There is only the means of grace that God has appointed to us. The proclamation of the gospel to your heart again and again in the context of a loving community with spiritual disciplines surrounding you, stumbling toward grace day after day. Jesus wants us to see in this passage whole person righteousness. This righteousness that flows out of the heart is a righteousness enamored with love with no room for lust because it knows the love of God and it wants to love like God. And we can become like that, not by our own efforts, not through self-hatred, not through beating ourselves up, but by grace and the power of God's spirit in our midst. So this morning, as you take an honest assessment of your heart, and the lustful intent that maybe you have. When you take an honest assessment of your life and maybe some of the questionable actions going on in your life, may you also take assessment of these words. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And may his grace transform you so you can go and sin no more.